Welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, Vijar Nathan. And with us today is a special guest, Michael Matika, who practices philosophy in his life and runs a YouTube channel titled Philosophy with the Living. A native New Yorker, he teaches English as a foreign language in Prague, where he's lived for more than 10 years. Welcome, Michael. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. So why don't we start the conversation off a little bit about um, philosophy as a way of living? Uh, how do you, you know, there's so many ancient philosophers, so many uh, even modern philosophers that have something to say about how to live our life and how, what the meaning of life is. But how do you navigate that uh, so, when there's so much out there, you know? How do you choose or select, oh, this is the one for me, and this is kind of the philosophy that I'm going to apply? You know, how do you navigate that difficult terrain sometimes? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I'll tell you what. I, I studied philosophy. I got a bachelor's degree in philosophy. Mm. Um, so I had a pretty solid introduction to it. But this was academic philosophy, right? So uh, this is a different way of approaching to it, philosophy. Um, but I had an introduction to it. It was afterwards looking back that um, I sort of recollected that um, there were people who were talking about happiness and the mm. good life. And I remembered that in retrospect and thought, that's what I want. That's what I need. So specifically, that is Aristotle with uh, the Nicomachean Ethics. Um, so I, yeah, it's, I returned to him hardcore, like really yeah. leaned into him. Um, another one that I really uh, took up and I didn't study him in, uh, when I was doing my degree. Um, so I only read him much later was Epictetus. Um, and he's interesting because he didn't write anything, actually. Um, all that survives of his are like lecture notes that his student Arian took. Um, and Epictetus, when you read these lectures, um, he had the sense that philosophers didn't need to write anymore, that there wasn't any need to produce new texts. And what he talked about again and again was that all that we need to do is to embody what we've already written down. Right, so what the philosopher should be doing is focusing on, I need to do this in my life. We have enough books already. Let me just make it real in my body. And for me, that was maybe the most important, um, the most important model, right? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's so many choices, but uh, <laughs> for those, those two, those two really stuck. Yeah, I think that also with my own practice, it's like Buddhism, we taught like, um, like we should look at philosophy, the philosophy of Buddhism as medicine, and we should take the medicine rather than there's no help to the metaphor they use is that, you know, reading medical instructions are useless is you have to actually take the medicine. So how does that, how does like, you know, I mean, we heard that metaphor so much, but is it like holding the teaching during the day and like saying, how can I apply this specific teaching? Or what does it mean to you to take the medicine? You know, like, what is that? What, how do you how do you embody? Like, what is it? Is it mean like constantly being in the state of like, oh, this situation also relates to that? Or is it doing meditation sessions formally? Or what is what is kind of your technique of taking that medicine? Um, all right. There's a quote by Epic, uh, Epicurus, a different one, um, that I've 
I've set it apart as like my mission statement. Yeah. Um, because for me, this is a. Okay, this helps me to remember what it's all about. So the quote is A philosopher's words are empty if they do not heal human suffering. For just as medicine is useless if it does not expel sickness from our bodies, so philosophy is useless if it does not expel suffering from our souls and minds. And for me, this is important both in how I study philosophy and how I practice it, but also through the day, right? Like, so when I'm studying it, this is why I'm studying it to, right? Like, it's a treatment. And as I'm going through the day, the, the treatment should show its effects throughout the day, right? It's not like I can turn off the, the clock and say, yeah. okay, now philosophy is done, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, you see, a, you see a progressive improvement, you're saying. You're saying you're kind of sure, trying yeah. to improve the things that bothered you yesterday are things that will not bother you hopefully today or that will, will reduce their bothering reduce their yeah. uh, anger if you get angry at something and then you're like next day i'll try to work on that and slowly slowly you know you'll get less angry about that <laughs> that right. particular situation yeah so i see what you say yeah. yeah thank you thank you um so um, what what about values and virtue what role do you think values and virtue play in uh this process of slowly um you know how do we even know if these values are values you know like how do we kind of understand that certain values are values that we should value you know like how do we kind of come to those conclusions um yeah okay so um i guess i've picked up uh what you would call virtue ethics now that this perspective uh i didn't learn about that at all when i was in school um uh, you know it from a show like the good place where they talk about um uh kant and utilitarianism or um right well those two right um where we're trying to decide is it always good to do this sort of action or um do we need to think about the consequences of the action and measure it by that um for me, that always got really tangled up um, in theoretical, it, it can get very tangled. And you don't know, like, hmm, is that really good or is that really bad? Virtue ethics is completely different in the idea that you take this list of virtues um, and it's really, it could be a list, right? So Aristotle talks about um, courage, moderation, um, generosity ambition balanced temper um wittiness truthfulness but i mean you can have any sort of list of essentially these are good qualities Mm. um and i take a lot of them from modern um like positive psychology just good qualities and you take this list of good qualities and in any situation during the day that you encounter any sort of challenge you just pick one quality and you say, okay, in this, in this context, I want to embody friendliness. So how can I do that? And eventually you want to expand all of these qualities, all of these abilities 
it's it's about really developing and expanding hmm. yourself um and and so in this sense i don't know that there really is a value right it's just like um can i be more honest hmm. in this moment i'm going to practice being honest it doesn't mean that anybody else has to but it gives me a focus on any in any situation that this is something i can work on to get better at yeah yeah and it seems like also what i'm hearing you say is that uh experimenting with different qualities and seeing what the result is i'm kind of that's what i'm hearing at least is that like seeing oh if i be more honest will it make me more happy and experimenting with that and seeing focusing in on that and you know kind of verifying for ourselves if these qualities actually produce happiness in our day-to-day life which is something that i think uh you know my own philosophy kind of encourages you know us to experiment with you know not just taking their word for it but to to you know try to instill in a certain virtue or, or value and think about well how does it make me feel to to embody that value you know yeah thank you thank yeah, you yeah that's great um it is true and i'll say that from this way of uh coming to coming to things it gives me a great sense of freedom in that there's so many options with what I can try to experiment on. Like um, I can sp- experiment with one thing today and try a different thing tomorrow and uh, yeah. learn from all of it. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Good, good. And also like one of the, you know, for the listeners, they know uh, some of my previous co-hosts, my previous co-hosts, uh, Jessica Hines has talked about curiosity, replacing judgment with curiosity um so that was always something i kept with me as a gift from her you know my previous co-host um replacing replacing judgment with curiosity so being able to like look into our and i think i take that really as a wide uh wide direction that in any instance when we're kind of confused instead of like making a quick judgment this is good or bad we're like well what is the cause of that or what is the kind of investigation into the causes investigation into the feelings behind it what it triggers in us and what um kind of is created in the system yeah what are your feelings on that and like i think philosophers are always curious i think that's kind of the the given if you will (laughs) i i hope to be um actually all right there's a couple of things that um so i'm thinking of uh the allegory of the cave yeah yeah i want to bring that up uh, too yeah thank you right um, yeah. um, I'm thinking of that specifically, but also Socrates in his general attitude where he always claimed to be ignorant. Mm. Um, and I think that, but I mean, of course, like if you, if you, he, the man was brilliant, right? He was yeah. wise, but here he was always saying, well, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Let's talk about it. Let's figure it out. Um, I think to aggressively adopt the pose that I don't know, that forces it forces curiosity, right? Like it, mm. it means, well, if here I am now, I need to move out to discover more and um and to never accept that you know Hmm. um so really to always insist that i am ignorant i don't know what wisdom is um and if you are ignorant you cannot judge i think that's 
um, if you know that you're ignorant, right, mm. then how can you make the judgment? Um, yeah, so I, I do think that's, uh, there is a link there, right? And that's sort of strange to think about that there is, um, y- you can't be both. Yeah. One thing that kind of struck me as I was doing these journeys is that the idea that no one knows and the idea that it's okay, you know, it's like the idea that, like, I mean, we kind of go on the assumption when I say I know something that someone else doesn't know something or that someone else knows, doesn't know something and that I know something, all these kind of, these kind of uh, binaries of knowing. But when we kind of disrupt that and we're like, well, no one really knows anything, but at the same time, there's a conventional understanding you know, we have conventional understandings of like systems and in relation to each other, things make sense. But in relation to the absolute or if there is an absolute, then there's no connection to the absolute. You know, it's my kind of okay, take on that. A, yeah. And we got to get into that. Yeah. Unpack that. For I want to. Yeah. If I could ask you, I'm yeah. curious because I'm willing to accept that. Yeah. Then I'm curious and I'd like to hear what you have to say about it because I know you're a good student too. Yeah, thank you. Um, and um, so then, if I that makes sense to me, what you just said. Yeah. But then, why should I study anything that anybody else wrote? Uh, I would say it's because we're we're like the absolute is something that's completely unindifferentiated, right? So it's completely blank of any kind of impression, and we want to make an impression on it. We want to put our mark on it. That's our intention. So in order to do so effectively, we have to study the relationships between knowledge and the conventional world so that then we can like field into the undifferentiated and put our face on it, if you will, or put our kind of impression on it. And we'll see ourselves in it and we'll kind of create something new or we'll create something. And that's the purpose of our life really is to do something, to engage. And rather than being like slaves to other people's views, we can then break free by acknowledging that, you know, um, and we're negotiating with them. They have all the power in a sense. It's like uh, there's a sea of people out there and we're just one person. So acknowledging, okay, I uh, in the face of this onslaught, I'm, you know, kind of giving in to the fact that, you know, I'm powerless and I don't know, you know, it's like just acknowledging our positioning, you know, <laughs> Right. Yeah. So we go into the algorithm of the cave. Why don't we tell people who may not be familiar a little bit about that? And then why don't you narrate a little bit of the algorithm of the cave and its context? And then we can go a little bit into okay. that. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah. So the basic setup of this is that, um, well, it's a story. And there's a cave, and people are chained with their heads facing towards a wall. Um, They can't even move their heads. And on the wall, they're watching shadows move. And they can't even turn their heads to see the person who's sitting next to them. And they think that the shadows on the wall are reality. Behind them, there's a fire and there are people who are holding up like puppets and creating these shadows on the wall. Um, The story is that somehow and this isn't really explained in the story, but somehow one of these people comes free and they turn around and they see the people with the puppets. They see the fire. They realize everything I thought was real was just a shadow on the wall. 
they don't just go to the people with the puppets at the fire or this person says wait i'm gonna go out of the cave mm. and he begins to climb up out of the cave and comes out into daylight and this is painful and he's blinded by it because he's never actually looked with his eyes in daylight the matrix uses this very much um and then he sees the real world and what happens after is he decides to go back down into the cave because he wants to liberate the other people who are still in chains in the cave, um, but they don't want to be liberated, um, which is, this is about, well, Socrates was executed. That's what um, people didn't want to be. Well, I mean, it's painful to, mm. to walk up out of the cave, to, uh, to, to be blinded. Um, okay, now that's the basic story. I, I think that's, yeah. that's about it. Um, all right, so now I take this as a challenge, right? Um, I would very much like in my own self-image to think, ooh, I'm the philosopher. I already broke free. <laughs> I already walked up. I already saw the sunlight. And here I am. I'm like back down in the cave to help everybody. That would be nice. What I try to remind myself is that this has more power if I think I am still in mm. chains mm. i am still looking at shadows oh um this word so plato says that the key within this story the key philosophical move is to turn around to move from looking at the shadows to seeing the rest of the world mm. and this is a uh, in latin this got translated to conversio turning around and this is where we get the idea of conversion mm. um and i really like the idea that to really have a philosophical life involves conversion in the sense that you're not just accepting the superficial face values anymore because you see that and you think wait a second there's something else going on behind me and that's what i, I need to learn about um yeah. And so, yeah, when I hear that story, I'm always thinking there's something more. And that's where I need to get. In uh, the tradition I go to in Buddhism, we t or just in Buddhism in general, I think, they talk a little bit about renunciation. And I'd be curious whether or not you think renunciation is turning around. If you think, if you get the impression that wow. renunciation is kind of like a way of turning around to seeing like, mentally just detaching from attachment to like reward or attachment to um you know kind of this 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 rigmarole we go through in the daily life yeah uh wow I, i'm sort of blown away by that um yeah there's there's a clear connection and i um oh, and i never thought of it um oh yeah okay all right so what what that just puts into my mind is that this this turning around in the story yeah. it's limited to the shadows right shadow play on a wall but you're right that there are these emotional connections that um so turning away from a shadow on the wall involves uh a lot of things that would be involved in renunciation, right? Like your ambitions for this 
I, for example, maybe I have a real powerful dream that I'm going to live, live on a mansion on the beach, right? But then I realize, wait, that's just a shadow on the wall. But that emotion's there, right? Like, yeah. so for me to turn around from that, yeah, that takes renunciation. That's uh, especially when mm. we're like invested in the shadow, following the predictions that we wanted to, or that the, our desires are embodied in that shadow. You know, like we're like, yeah. oh, I really have a lot invested in that gameplay of the shadow, and you know, kind of thing. Right. There's a lot, a lot rising on that shadow you know, kind of doing its thing. And then we have to actually let right. go of that. And I would say even like when we, we going through the process of leaving the cave and coming back, it's easy to get re uh, mesmerized by it. And like constantly the process of like going back and going back, back and forth, back and forth. So I think that kind of process of is like a familiarity with that journey. I would say like probably, you know, the people in the cave have the ability to go. They do go back, you know, when people get depressed or when people feel kind of go through emotional turmoil they're going through the process of going up to that real world and coming back and then reintegrating and you know it's the process is something many people go through and then just trying to decide okay how am I, how can i navigate that skillfully you know right yeah yeah um oh uh, all right I'm, I'm going out on a limb here this is not <laughs> something i've ever heard anyone talk about or read about but but uh, Socrates also talked about reincarnation. Oh, wow. so Plato talked about reincarnation. And if you think about this idea that we've been in the cave before um, and that this is an ongoing process, there's like two, there's a wheel within a wheel here, right? So you're born into the cave and you could rise up out of the cave and you go back down into the cave and you rise up and, and then you're reborn into it again, right? Um, that this process of rising and falling is is repeating quite often probably um and i think you're right that you know that you well we go up and we go down that's that's life yeah that's lives <laughs> good good and then uh it's like i think that i would say that uh as far as the dream imagery goes like i think in buddhism it's like the dream metaphor is used to say that we've created the world like in the sense that it's like dreamlike, has dreamlike quality. So talking a little bit about that and like, you know, when we talk about reincarnation as in incarnating, it's usually like there's a physical external world, the, the established conventional knowledge is that we're living as agents within, uh, independent agents within a physical world. And in Buddhism, they think that they, they kind of postulate that the whole world is, is a manifestation of our consciousness. So in other words, it's like there's no actual physical world in the way in which we see it. I mean, there is, but it's not doesn't manifest. It's not doesn't exist in the way in which we see it as like an external objective reality. But it's co it's completely subjective. It's like com like it's so intertwined with what we want and what we think about and what we focus on that there's no way to really distinguish between what's actually out there and what's in here, or what's kind of what we're generating. Is that kind of what the, what is the consensus among Western philosophers about that? I don't know. I don't really see much about like the world being completely subjective. I think like even no. this book I got, why does the world exist? They never question that the world does exist. I mean, they briefly talk about it, 
but they don't really, really get into the idea that the world doesn't exist. It just exists in dependence upon mind, you know? Right. Um, uh, yeah, I would say that uh, what I know of, uh, of modern philosophy, they do sort of take for granted. There is something called panpsychism, which is somehow talking about that consciousness is fundamental in everything, but but they still sort of take for granted that uh, material reality is is rock solid. Um, but I'll tell you, but I, I'm open to what you're talking about. Yeah. Actually, last night I was thinking about um, Shakespeare's The Tempest, which blows me away, this, this play. And I was thinking of it specifically in that um, the, the incredible thing about this play is that it feels like a psychodrama in the sense that, so we have the main character, Prospero, and he has a daughter and he's dealing with a, a spirit and there's a character named Caliban and his old brother and the Duke. And it feels like each of these characters is actually just an externalization of Prospero's inner personality, right? So it's psychodrama, like all of these characters are actually just aspects of Prospero. But the amazing thing about the play is that this works for each of the characters. Somehow, I don't know how Shakespeare like, uh -huh. thought of this yeah. in terms of putting it together, but like, it feels like, okay, Miranda, like she's looking at this young guy and she's looking at her father and really they're all just parts of herself. But each of these characters and what you're talking about, the idea that our subjective realities, our subjective consciousnesses are somehow meeting mm. and generating reality. Um, I mean, that's what Shakespeare was talking about in The Tempest. And um, I, I don't have proof, right? I don't, know yeah. what the I don't know what the answer is. But I think if you think of, if I think of my life in that way, it helps me to approach it better, right? Like it'll make me more sensitive to the situations I'm involved in and how maybe I can respond to them better. Um, mm. Yeah, right? I think because also then, to then, some extent, like these things are neither true nor not true. It's just a question of making or embodying them in a way that kind of brings the truth out you know it's like it's, an, it's not that it's not it's not that it's true or it's not true it's just that it's some it's a perspective that we can take upon it's a viewpoint right we can take upon right. and then see yes what happens with it you know experiment with it yeah I'll, and i'll tell you what happens when i when i take on that viewpoint is that suddenly my environment is alive hmm. and instead of it being like some uh material process that's you know just beyond any sort of uh, influence but if it's all being generated by these subjective consciousnesses then i think well um it's responsive right it's something's going to happen if i act within this field um yeah it just makes me more more alert i guess if i think in that way and it's useful and so if we can take on that viewpoint and it is productive then then i say do it yeah good good so as a reminder, listeners this is the truth to power show on ready for brooklyn um you know we're talking to michael matika who 
well, grew up in Staten Island, New York. We went to high school together in the same high school, and we were friends then. And uh, many years later, we were reconnecting. Um, so it's really great. Michael Matika uh, practices the philosophy in his life and runs a YouTube channel titled Philosophy for Living. So how did you start this Philosophy for the Living YouTube channel, and what was kind of some of the processes behind that? What were some of the videos you did on that? Okay. Um, I mean, it all began... Originally, the idea was I was going to do a a, a podcast. Um, I started working on that, and and I realized it just wasn't the form wasn't going to really work for me. But I had already started doing the work of the writing for it, um, and I just sort of let it sit for a while. Um, and, and then I realized that I some for some reason the videos would be um, would be more convenient for me. Um, for me, I got to say that the entire project is, um, it's fun. It's sort of a, like a, a microcosm of, of what's happening with me because before I did any of this, I didn't know anything about recording video. I didn't know about anything about editing. Uh, um, I've, I have experience with writing before, but I never, uh, did any public speaking or anything. You know, I was never an actor. So all of it. This is a major learning experience for me. And I like the idea that I was going to learn how to do this as I was talking about topics about how to use philosophy to live better because um, I was growing according to the philosophical topics, but I was also growing technically and developing these uh, capabilities that yeah I never had before. So it's... Um, going after every learning curve I can identify, I guess. Yeah. It's really good. It's really good. I think that it's always good for people to challenge themselves and when they see a weakness in themselves or see something that's hindering them, to be like, how can I address that in the most direct way possible? How can I kind of overcome that? Or how can I kind of, you know, um, you know, we talk about in philosophy also the struggle. You know, struggle comes up a lot in many different philosophies, in many different contexts. Um, you know, kind of the the uh, enshrinement of our struggle and kind of the enshrinement of our of our wrestling with, um, you know, kind of and then and that kind of thing, the process by which we become better people. You know, or kind of it's like the it's like the it's not even the it's like the process itself is almost the product. You know, I feel like it's like just the process itself, just being in that engaged and being in that um, in that development process, the development curve. Yeah. And trying to find, you know, the avenues in which we can make more push. So, I mean, when people talk about like our life's work and, you know, a product, product, product. But actually, I think that we can agree that this process is really the product, right? Would you say? And how, yeah, how did you um, reflect on that? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Um something that I really love about this. Uh, all right. So 42 years old, right? Um, it's, I'm not old, but uh, old enough to have some experience. And at some point um, you realize like enough successes, enough failures. And, um, and you taste a little bit of both and success tastes good, failure tastes bad. But then you realize like, well, um, success isn't enough 
right? Like I need something that's going to keep going as long as I do. And you know what I mean? So like you can, okay, so I achieve my dream um, and then I feel good for a bit, but then now what do I do? So you could just constantly establish new dreams, right? Just you achieve one and then, okay, set up a new one, right? And constantly do this. But um, I guess at some point I was like, well, wait a second. I need something that's going to take my whole life to do because, because yeah, it shouldn't, I, it shouldn't, I shouldn't ever come up to a point where I, I've done everything I wanted to do. And I think, oh no, now what? <laughs> and so, yeah, cultivating my, my own virtue, making myself my project. Mm. I, I love the idea that this is something that I will have a project until my last breath. Right? <laughs> I know it, you know, and that's, yeah. uh, for me, that's exciting. I like, I like that. Yeah. I like the analogy um, that or the, the thought of in the film inception in the film inception, they talk about like, there's a moment that I was keying on where um, the Leonardo DiCaprio character talks to the, the architect who's played by Ellen page. And he's like, um, create a maze in like a minute that will take me two minutes to solve. And, you know, like that was really interesting to me because I think any philosophical system has to have some kind of resolution, but it takes their whole life to complete it. So hopefully you'll complete it. But, you know, I don't know. I just feel like we need to have some kind of solution. If you have like a philosophical problem that has no solution, I feel like it's a little less um, engaging than something that has a solution, but it's very difficult to get to that solution. You know, what do you think about a solution versus no solution? If there's, if there's, um, you know, is there a solution or is there no solution? And that kind of wrestling with that idea that there must be an endpoint, you know, at the same time. Yeah. You know? Okay. This is, uh, I, okay. I don't, I don't have this answer. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have the solution. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, it makes me think of um, the cynics. Um, the philosophical school, the cynics, they were um, not really interested in the intellectual side of philosophy. They were much more focused on the philosoph or the the lifestyle. Um, and the cynics would they took on extreme poverty and they would just walk from town to town preaching about virtue. Um, Diogenes was their great hero. One thing that they um, talked very much about is the sage and the sage is the perfect um, the perfect human the perfectly virtuous uh, example and they would talk about Socrates as this sage they also talked about Diogenes as a sage maybe you could draw some parallels with um, with the Buddha um, and it's tricky because they talk about the sage as if this is an unattainable goal. Um, that none of us mere mortals can do that, right? Like it's just, but there's a use in establishing this ideal beyond reach because then you always have something, you always have something to aim for. Mm. Um, whereas if you do it, and you're 35 years old and you've already achieved you know the the status of sage 
then you have like you know 40 50 years of of who knows what you know like um yeah. so i don't know i mean the idea of 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 a solution is it good i don't know if it is good but on the other hand um how do you motivate how do you keep motivated towards something that's unattainable yeah that's also that's and i think there's also there's I don't a know. very I mean, big gap between attaining something and verifying that you attained it like in other words like you can kind of in your own mind you can be like oh i'm there but then that's just for you like that's just like your own process and nobody else cares about on some level nobody else cares if you think you're the greatest or if you think you're the best <laughs> you know it's like what is that how does that help me where's the you know like, how does it help the other person if they're like you know well i can only do so much with you know your attainments you know i don't know um can i ask you about um if we're connecting as uh, greek philosophies with uh with buddhism with the bodhisattva yeah um i don't know of a real parallel so okay so when socrates comes back into the cave to liberate the others that sort of looks like the bodhisattva move um but there isn't generally a sense that yeah i, I i'm just curious how that works um in yeah, the sense I of mean, a lot of people talk about bodhisattvas as like delaying enlightenment you know like i hear a lot of this like they've they've kind of delayed their entrance into enlightenment in order to help others uh but i think there's really uh it's like a there's a relationship between the Bodhisattva and the Buddha is very like, and like fluid, you know. So it's basically like anyone who's motivated by Bodhicitta or the heart of compassion, uh, Bodhicitta is like the heart of the wish that other people be enlightened. So anyone who's motivated becomes a Bodhisattva or becomes like becomes the person who is motivated by helping others. And then you're kind of going about your work in the world to kind of help others with the goal. Of liberating others. I mean, I have tattooed on my shoulder the Bodhisattva vows, which is living beings yes. are numberless. I vow to save them all. Uh, confusions are inexhaustible. I vow to extinguish them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. And uh, the Buddha way is unattainable. I vow to attain it. So it's basically that's kind of the. It's just, it just embodies exactly what you're saying. It's like these goals may be perceived as you know, unattainable or un, or boundless or numberless, but we're kind of making that commitment that we're going to go after that. And in some ways, just a flip of perception, we can just say, oh, like that, we can say, oh, actually, people are saved. People are, you know, fine the way they are. And it, nobody can contradict that, you know? Like, there's no way to say that they're not saved, you know? <laughs> uh, okay, so, that yeah, that's an interesting... Oh. Another thing, um, Dante's Inferno. I, I once saw a lecture where um, the professors really emphasized that um, the gate that leads down into the Inferno is is destroyed. It's broken. And this means that there is anybody in the Inferno can walk out at any time. Mm. Which to me, when I first heard that, I was like, what? Wow. Um, and so the, the whole thing, like all of those souls that you see suffering, like we, we think about all the different types of suffering, but it's important to realize that the, any one of them could walk out 
at any time there's no guards to stop them yeah and that was a, a strange thing for me to be like oh my god that's that's really true in the story at least now with uh, the allegory of the cave socrates walks down and he sees these people chained and they're looking at the shadows in the story socrates removes their chains and they don't like it and that's why they kill him oh yeah this is, this is a violent story you know like, <laughs> but socrates was killed but i do wonder how that relates with the bodhisattva in the sense of um right what if people don't want to be helped yeah i always think about that too and i think the solution is just to go about it in a way that we understand they already are where they need to be you know like in other words like we can't assume that we're saving them but rather that it's all like a psychodrama if you will like the viewpoint that we're actually we're actually i'm the last or we're the last bodhisattva out last man standing and that everyone else is actually pretending like in some way they're acting like they're actually manifestations of buddha and bodhisattvas who are enacting the psychodrama to help you out get out of samsara get out of uh your your chains but actually they're all actually already attained enlightenment because we don't know we can't look into their mind so we can't look in anyone else's mind except our own so we can't know whether or not they're actually perfect you know or not you know (laughs) that's great yeah like any 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 comments on that or like what 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 do philosophers say about like the idea that we can't look into other people's minds like what is the problem of like other people's minds and that we can't know like what what evidence do we have even that like what what are the evidences that we have about other people's minds we don't want to fall into like slopsism but we want to kind of go into some kind of territory slopsism i don't even know how to say that word but uh uh you know it's like we can't fall into all our mind is the only mind we we can but at the same time we can't think that you know what is what is the what is the problem with other people's minds yeah yeah that's another one that uh right so so solipsism i don't want to believe that i'm the only person yeah um but Honestly, um, I don't. I can't prove that it's not true. Yeah. I, I just, I just accept that. No, that's not real. I'm assuming that other people have minds. Um, uh, I don't know. Wittgenstein talked about um, certain statements where if a person, um, you can correct people if a person says. Um, uh for example if a person says the world is flat i can correct this statement right i I can gather evidence and i can say actually no that statement is it's a false statement Mm. Um, but if a person says i'm in pain yeah i can't correct that i i have to accept that this is you know i mean that's Mm. that's their inner world that they're speaking of and I just have to I either take it on faith or I don't take it or what, but I can't disprove that sort of statement. Mm. Um, and I don't know what to think about that. I'll tell you something I thought of recently, which is sort of a, an inverted form of that. Um, maybe you know this too, where somebody tells you, I'm fine, I'm not in pain. 
but you know they're lying. Oh, <laughs> right? yeah. Um, and in that sense, and then yeah. I was thinking of that. I was like, what does that mean if, if they don't think they're in pain? <laughs> yeah. Wow. wow. You know, I, yeah. I, I don't know how to feel about that. It's a, yeah. I, and I don't know. That's a mystery to me. I, I don't. I don't know what to think yeah. about. Something that. to think about because, like, in, in our life, it's like we think we know themselves. We think we know people better than they know themselves, you know. And right. whether or not that's true or not, it's hard to say. I mean, I mean, it's like. But no, I mean, I can say honest. okay. I, I don't want to judge other people, but I can yeah. say for myself yeah. that people have said to me, "Mike, what's wrong?" I'm like, "Nothing's wrong." Yeah. But then afterwards, I think about it, I'm like, whoa, I was in a really weird place at the time. Yeah. But I wasn't aware of it. Yeah. Other people were aware of it. Um, but I, yeah. Yeah, being dishonest with ourselves is a big problem right. because it's like maybe people sense that we're being dishonest. That dishonesty is like uh, something they can sense or they can pick up on. Yeah. That's right. interesting. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So um, let's see. I'm looking at my notes here. Um, what else? Uh, so we talked a little bit about like the divination arts or the divining arts in our pre-interview questions. And I'd be curious to get your perspective on um, how the occult or like the, uh, if you want to call it the occult or the occult practices or practices related to supernatural, if you will. I don't know. What, how do we ground that in like, it's not supernatural. It's more like, psychological if you will i don't know right. what, what is it what is the grounding factor because a lot of people are like you know oh these are things that are against nature you know against the natural world but there's something rooted in that like divination that's psychological i think what is your take on that yeah yeah um i i guess i was exposed to jung's thoughts on on the occult and um, different dream practices, dream work, or that sort of thing. And that made me open to the idea that um, I think it's helpful to use the perspective that this is psychological work, yeah. that you're working with the mind. Um, but it has to, this within Jung's perspective, the mind is vast, right? So then this is how if you have the collective unconscious when you're working with the mind this connects out into something much broader than the individual mm. um yeah i could say i mean I, I i work with tarot cards tarot cards i like because so there are 78 cards 78 images of human situations and I like to work with them because, um, like with virtue, um, practicing these different virtues, um, and I have lists of virtues to practice. And I think I want to expand myself along all of these dimensions. So tarot cards have 78 different human situations that maybe very often... I would forget or neglect these aspects of life. Um, maybe if I'm left to my own uh, inclinations, I would only focus on these 10 aspects of life. And so then the tarot comes in with these 68 other things. I'm like, oh, yeah, I wouldn't think about um, this part of my life. Um, 
Yeah, so the occult, I think, is useful for getting out the unconscious, um, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, dynamics. Hmm. Um, yeah, I would think right. that about in relation to astrology. It's like many people think of like um, astrology in relationship to actual planets. You know, it's like Saturn out there is influencing my decision making. But I think it's really in relationship to the forces or the ideas within our human consciousness, within our human history, human consciousness that are actually influencing us. Like our the perception that the world has of these bodies, heavenly bodies, if you will. Um, so it's very subtle. It's like, you know, how human consciousness has expanded. That's why like our understanding of the universe expand is parallel or synchronistic synchronistic with the understanding of the actual physical universe is like has synchronicity with you know kind of how we expand our human experience so it's like these bodies are actually like forces within these um human consciousness if you will and we kind of yeah. can't separate them from maybe the actual physical embodiment i don't know yeah what you just said uh uh, I know a little bit about astrology, not yeah. not much, no, yeah. but I am curious about it. Um, and what you just said about Saturn being like this external thing, um, I like the idea of recognizing the internal Saturn yeah. right, and the internal Jupiter, because I, I mean, I can't speak for other people, but personally, I I can be tempted to understand myself in a flat linear way um like a falling dominoes right and there's just like one line of progress that's going along and and it's uh it's predetermined because it's just one linear process but if i think of that uh, astrological perspective where there's a saturn at work in me and there's a jupiter at work in me and there's a mercury at work in me and there are all these different influences and what I am is the outcome of all of these influences coming together. That makes me more open to pay attention to myself, right? Because maybe something isn't having uh, an overt influence, but it's still in there, right? Like mm. maybe uh, Mercury is in Gemini, but I'm only paying attention to Saturn and Jupiter in Aquarius, right? But I mean, that Mercury is still in there somewhere and it's still doing something. Yeah. I like this idea of, yeah, a, uh, an expanded conception of what's going on in the self. That's not just one simple process. Yeah, we're like all, we're, we live in the world. And even if we uh, like to focus on even if we're introspective or if we're like introverted, we're still, you know, we still have impressions or imprints from this whole world, from going out into the world, from being born, all these kinds of things. Um, so we are kind of accepting influences. So it's all in that stew inside of ourselves yeah. somehow. In other words, it's made its way in there, whether we like it or not. You know, we're kind of yeah. we've got we received impressions. So you know, yeah. uh, countless impressions probably. But um, I just want to quickly say um, this is Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, 
True to Power Show. Also, I just want to tell people, if you live in New York City and run for the fun or exercise, here's a fun way to learn something about the city where you're getting in your workout. City Running Tours is now offering neighborhood running tours designed with locals in mind. New York City takes pride in the diversity and character of its neighborhood, and these unique running tours offer an opportunity to learn the history of the neighborhood and get personal recommendations from your guide. Choose some tours of 23 neighborhoods, including the East Village, the Upper West Side, Bushwick, Long Island City, and Roosevelt Island. For information about these running tours and see the dust of the neighborhoods and full tour schedule, check out their website at cityrunningtours.com slash New York City. Maybe they're having running tours. Uh, I don't know how big their catalog is, but definitely check out to see if it's in your neighborhood, if you're um, if you're wherever you are. Um, Ready for Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Uh, we kind of run on donations, so please consider donating to us at readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Uh, you can uh, find out more about listening through the apps on your phone at readyforbrooklyn.org. Uh, just search for it on iPhone or Android, the app stores, and you can have the app on your phone to listen uh, live so you're not chained to your computer. That's about it. And then um, just as we wrap up the last five minutes, I just want to return to The Good Place and No Exit by Jean-Paul Sartre. And the idea that the inferno and like we can close with that uh, concept. Um, like in No Exit, uh, he's like, it's similar concept. It's like they can leave at the end of the play. They're like, oh, they have the ability to leave. There's no guard. They can just walk out, but they don't. And I think Sartre was saying, tell us other people in the sense like our relationships with other people is what keeps us here. So it's like that pins us down. You know, it's like that creates an anxiety or like a, a destruction in us. Um, and it's interesting because it's like it's ultimately our relationship with other people that really enriches us as well. But also as a double edged sword, it's like, you know, it binds us, it creates us it all this kind of thing. So thinking about that and thinking about kind of hell and heaven, you know, I haven't finished good place yet actually i'm still on season three i'm like close to the end uh, of season three so i don't know what happened season four i mean i assume i assume i like, kind of my assumptions of what's gonna happen but i don't know but uh I'm not say yeah no it doesn't say anything but well i'll just say that um you know my assumption is that like heaven and hell are very much like an experience rather than you know like a, a place you know it's just like an experiential you know like how we how we experience these things there's the, the famous Zen saying uh, where the guy goes to the Zen monk and he's like, show me heaven, show me hell. And he says, oh, you're, a, you're an idiot. You know, you're a stupid head. And he's like, oh, and he, he pulls out his sword and he's like, that is hell. And then he's like, thank you. And he's like, that is heaven. You know, this is heaven or something like that. You know, this is yeah, very yeah. interesting koan to meditate um, on. Yeah. I, I, one of the videos I did for Philosophy for the Living was on that koan. Um, and... I'll say uh, with uh, with Dante's Inferno, taking that same, not just the Inferno, but the uh, the entire Divine Comedy. So, um, hell, purgatory, and heaven. I when I read them, I get the feeling that he's not talking about anything after death. He's talking about present psychological states of all people in the world right now you know that uh we can be in any one of these positions um so the person sitting next to me on the on the tram could be in hell mm. and then the person on the other side's in heaven right and we're all like 
shifting through these positions and yeah it's like this vast negotiation going on um mm. because you're right it's, and i think you're right it's it's ultimately about people yeah. um that's where we're really engaged almost like chemical elements right we're like attaching to the other people and like there's okay yeah there's water all around us right but we're really paying attention to the people yeah um and negotiating it constantly i guess right yeah and then also i would say um you know in regards to we think about reincarnation we're talking a little bit about reincarnation and, and dreamlike imagery it's like the the traditional meditations are the disappearance of the body you know it's like the body and the self actually disappear upon investigation uh this is something really interesting because it's like this can be applied to everything it's like when you actually look with you know the according to the buddhist traditional approach to like look with wisdom you know it's like where where are these objects in space and then you look and you're like oh you can only point to a part of the object rather than the actual object you can only point to the chest rather than the physical body and then you can only point to the heart you can only point to the cell and that's not the body and it's like what where is the body then and it's like disappears so it's like upon investigation uh it's not there actually it's like there is no spoon kind of a thing in matrix is like there is recognizing there is no spoon is the uh philosophical take on that yeah <laughs> yeah um that's uh interesting i've done that um that meditation i i know a bit about buddhism and these meditations and i've done that where i've had like a pain in my knee and it was like really meditate on it and like try to find the point where the pain is and and it's not there right and yeah. that's a very strange thing to realize that uh wait i can't i can't pinpointed i can't locate it so where is it i don't know um dreams um i don't know what the dream the matrix talks about this the dream like the residual self-image i think they call it in the matrix like what is the body that we dream in yeah um uh, I don't know what that is either. There's something else I'm curious about. I investigate like when I fly in a dream, first of all, how do I know what it feels like to fly? Um, where'd that sensation come <laughs> from? Um, but also why can't I control it? Right? Like, where's yeah. this sense of like, Oh, I'm flying too fast. I can't slow down. Um, the, yeah. I, I don't know where that gets created. Um, um, yeah, it's it's something I'm curious about. Yeah. Um, so as we get a last minute, I think it's definitely like, you know, curiosity is ultimately the the takeaway here the, for the listeners to kind yeah. of investigate and be curious and kind of always think about wh what, why or why not or, you know, always kind of asking questions about when we experience something like going to the root cause of what the, what the triggering factor is. But although each root cause has this, you know, further cause and following that chain, that chain without disconnecting from the moment, but like seeing how it's constantly and anything important will happen again, you know? So I think it's yeah. very important will probably reoccur. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Just uh, engage as much as possible. Yeah.